This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think you have to choose one technique, you know, because, you know, I've seen surgeons, they try to change all the time and they start one kind of surgical technique and then, then two months later, they try to do something different. And then if you do that, you never get very experienced in one single, you know, way to do a radical prostatectomy. So what I would recommend, like, choose your technique. There are many ways to do it. And once you choose it, you should get very experienced and optimize your outcomes by surpassing the learning curve. And so this is, I think, this is the key point for having good outcomes long-term. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Rafael Coelho from the University of Sao Paulo in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome to the show, Rafael. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me here tonight. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. So I had the good fortune of going to the uh, going to USB and um, working with uh, Raffaello. And I've always thought I could do a pretty good prostatectomy. I've seen a lot of people that do what I thought was a really good prostatectomy. And I got to say, you know, the prostatectomy Raffaello does is absolutely outstanding. And when I was thinking about a, a surgical tips and tricks, um, you know, it was top of the list that came to mind. So, you know, happy, excited to pick your brain. And maybe let's just start out with, uh, you know, what is the fundamental information that you're getting from the patient, imaging, pathology, functional status, when you're considering a patient for a prostatectomy? So, well, I think I have to combine everything. It's really a procedure that we should tailor for each patient. So we look at the MRI, every single patient gets an MRI prior to surgery. So we use that for nerve sparing. Basically, we know that MRI has a very high predictive value for extraprostatic extension. So when the MRI is positive, we believe that it's positive and we go for partial nerve sparing or maybe no nerve sparing procedure for advanced disease. But for those patients that have, that have a negative MRI, but a, like a high volume intermediate risk disease, we use nomograms. So we published one nomograms, one of these nomograms a couple of years ago using the data from 12,000 prostatic lobes. So it's a nomogram based on clinical parameters. And that's the, 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 these are the patients that I think nomograms can help. When the MRI is not conclusive, it's a negative MRI in terms of extension. But then you have a lot of glisome 4 plus 3 in the biopsy patients that I think they might have a microscopic extraprostatic extension. So we do combine the data from the MRI and nomograms in order to plan your nerve sparing procedure prior to the radical prostatectomy. Excellent, excellent. And, I, and we'll kind of talk into some of the you know nuances when you're actually doing it, no nerve sparing, sparing partial nerve sparing, et cetera. What about bladder neck sparing? Do you use uh, that routinely or is that also going to be based on the imaging? Oh, that's interesting. I think it's a lot of controversial data on the, on the impacts of a bladder neck sparing in terms of continence. I think if it does have any impact, it's in early continence, maybe not long-term. Long-term, I think it, it doesn't make change if you have bladder neck sparing or not. But we usually try to, to do a small bladder neck, not a very aggressive dissection like the French school. Uh, or like, you know, those guys, they do like a retro dissection. They do a circumferential dissection of the bladder neck. 
Because at the end, all you get is a slight preservation of the mucosa, which doesn't make any difference in terms of continence, in my opinion. So if I don't have a patient, a lot of disease in the base of the prostate or the bladder neck and the imaging or biopsies, I would go for a, what I call a partial bladder neck sparing, just make it small when I don't have to do a lot of reconstruction afterwards. But again, I don't think it does affect her continence long-term. And most of the data shows that maybe there's impact in early continence, but not long-term continence. I don't think it's, it's make, it makes any difference long-term. Yeah, when I talk to the uh, residents and fellows about the bladder neck, I say there's one of three possibilities here. A, you get a perfect, nice, compact bladder neck. B, you have a larger bladder neck that you can reconstruct. Or C, you get into the prostate. And the only option that's unacceptable is option C. So yes, I think a nice, small bladder neck that's compact and, and even potentially continent during the operation is nice. But as you, as you mentioned, if it's slightly larger or even if you have to reconstruct it, you, know, you can certainly salvage that long-term continence outcome. And then what about um, you know, the apical dissection? If the tumor is at the apex or into the stroma, do you approach your apical dissection any differently? So this is interesting. The way I'm doing the prostatectomy today, I, I don't ligate the DVC at the beginning of the procedure. I go just underneath the dorsal venous complex which I think this makes sense. This, this does make difference in my personal experience in early continence. So instead of ligating the DVC, we develop this avascular plane between the dorsal venous complex and the prostatic capsule anteriorly. So that's what I usually do. And when it's an anterior tumor, uh, sometimes with an extra prostatic extension anteriorly, then you have to change your kind of dissection. I still do not ligate the DVC at the beginning of the procedure. But in those patients, I leave parts of the dorsal venous complex into the prostate, covering that that uh, that tumor. So you're gonna have to cut through the DVC at some point, and it's gonna bleed a little bit more. This is when I just increase the new peritoneum pressure. Uh, but then I like to go a little bit wider anteriorly. But even in those situations, I think it's better if you don't like it the DVC because when you like it at the beginning. It's high, it's, there's only one spot where you can cut the DVC if it's ligated from the beginning. So you cannot tailor the procedure according to the risk of extra prostatic extension. So I do approach it differently, but again, I don't ligate the DVC at the beginning. In any case, I always left to the, to the file, to the end of the procedure. And again, if there is a large tumor in the apex anteriorly, I cut through the DVC. I leave part of the dorsal veins into the prostate in order to avoid a positive margin. Yeah, I think, um, you know, once we start talking about these things systematically, you know, I certainly always cut the DVC before I ligate it. And I think it, you know, I, I think about it like your, your DVC is draped over the urethra to some extent. So either you're going to incompletely ligate it or you're going to maybe potentially get a little bit of the anterior most aspect of the urethra, or you're going to be so pigeonholed into where you're going to cut based on your DVC stitch that you may not cut in the exact proper spot. So that's a modification. So maybe like just backing up a step, you know, so you're seeing a patient and you kind of mentioned if they've got some higher risk features, you use nomograms to, to dictate nerve sparing um, or not. And, uh, you know, of course, that's in the context of your MRI bladder neck sparing, it sounds like, you know, if it's a good option on base of the tumor right there at the, you know, transition zone, it could be a good option. But what about a lymph node dissection? 
You know, how do you decide who's going to get a node dissection? Does everybody get a node dissection in your hands and what the extent is going to be? So this is interesting because we, we changed this recently. We published about two years ago our randomized trial on lymphonode dissection in patients with intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer. It was the first uh, randomized trial published ever in uh, evaluating the oncologic outcome for patients undergoing radical prostatectomy. So what is found in this study, we randomized 300 patients to an extended versus limited lymphonode dissection with intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer. The, the, the main outcome was uh, biochemical free survival. And what we found, it was a negative trial in, uh, when you look at the overall cohort of patients. So there was no benefit of an extended lymphonode dissection for these patients when you compare to a limited lymphonode dissection. But when you look at the subgroup analysis that we did, those patients with a Gleason score 8, 9, and 10, those patients had a benefit. They had a potential benefit in terms of biochemical recurrence. And we tried to look at all nomograms out there. We look at the, the Briganti nomogram, the Moro nomogram, and we tried to find always the, what is the best nomogram to predict those patients that benefit of an extended lymphonode dissection. And that's what we found in our study. Gleason score is the major predictor for uh, those patients that will benefit in terms of biochemical recurrence. So we changed it. You used to use those nomograms in order to select patients to do an extended lymphonode dissection. You look at the EAU guidelines. If you have a, a, a predicted risk of positive no higher than 6%, sometimes, well, you know, they just choose a cutoff. That was what we were using in the past. After we published our trial, I just use Gleason score. This is in our series with the only way to select patients that may have a potential oncologic benefit with an extended dissection. So that's what we do. All patients with a Gleason score 8, 9, and 10, we do extended. Patients with intermediate risk, but uh, not with intermediate risk, not Gleason 8, 9, and 10, we do a limited lymphonode dissection. Those patients were included in the trial, and the low risk patients don't get a lymphonode dissection at all. Yeah, I think that's um, that's probably pretty reasonable. I, I feel like I've generally moved away from offering surgery as much as possible. I mean, sometimes it's patient preference for low risk, you know, Gleason score, 3 plus 3 equals 6, grade group 1. And, and I struggle with it, you know, for a 3 plus 4 equals 7, relatively modest PSA that I'm not overly worried about. You know, I, I feel bad omitting a lymphodissection at all whatsoever. And then I oftentimes will just do a bit of a extended, you know, common LEX and beyond, recognizing that the value added of doing that is extremely small and that, you know, the risks are generally fairly well tolerated, but, you know, by all means, I've had a lymphocele or an infected lymphocele, et cetera, and, you know, it, it can be a problem. But wholeheartedly agree that, that the grade group is going to be what kind of takes the day here, unless it's a very high PSA. And I do think that this is also going to evolve, you know, as next generation PET imaging becomes more and more of an ar ar armamentarium for working up high-risk patients. And, you know, maybe not the point of this discussion today, but how we're going to deal with folks with, you know, some suspicious lymph nodes in the uh, in the pelvis. So, you know, when I think about a patient and that you're, you've made the decision to go to surgery, the things that I can control as a surgeon are going to be the extent of my lymph dissection, whether I take a um, wide or a smaller bladder neck, 
whether I take an extended pedicle or nerve sparing, and whether I stay close to the prostate or whether I go a little bit more distally for apical tumors. And those are the kind of factors that I, I'm broadly thinking about. If it's an anterior tumor, sometimes they'll sell, they send the periprosthetic fat as an anterior prostate margin. Are there any things beyond that, kind of from an oncologic perspective, that you consider, Raffaello? Well, I think these are the main variables that you should have in your mind when you're doing a radical prostatectomy. I think the one that makes the difference at most for me is really the way we do the nerve sparing procedure because this is going to affect your oncological outcome in terms of positive margins and also the functional outcomes. So, you know, again, bladder neck sparing can have an impact in early continence, but really what makes difference in my experience is the way you do the nerve sparing procedure. So that's my main concern when I'm planning a radical prostatectomy is really how am I going to do it? Am I going to do a retrograde release of the neurovascular band? Am I going to do a partial, a full nerve sparing? How can I avoid a positive margin and still have a good functional outcomes? And this is really all about nerve sparing, in my opinion. But nerve sparing is not like we taught in the past. It's not only the posterior lateral dissection of the prostate. It does include the anterolateral dissection as well. As we said, we're not like getting the DVC at the beginning of the procedure anymore. And so we got to preserve these anterolateral neurovascular fibers, uh, which are actually part of the nerve sparing procedure. So it's not that we do nerve sparing, DVC, ligation, apical dissection. It's all part of the same surgical procedure. Either you go very close to the prostate or you go for a wide dissection and it's all connected, right? So it's all part of nerve sparing, in my opinion, and that's how I try to plan my procedure, how I'm going to do the nerve sparing on the left, on the right, and this is really the key for having a good outcome of a radical prostatectomy, in my opinion. Yeah, I appreciate that, and it is absolutely all related, and, you know, it's, it's definitely kind of patient-specific also. So how about broad stroke? So approach, I do a posterior approach, and, um, you know, the first thing I do is actually the lymphodissection. I like to just do that while I'm fresh. You know, I think it is human nature sometimes if you've had a long case, tough case that you say, okay, you know, maybe they're not that high risk. Let's let's do a bit less lymphodissection. So the first thing I do is the nodes. And um, as I mentioned, I, I kind of find the ureter, medialize it, and then do my common iliac external iliac hypogastric and optical lymph nodes. Then I go immediately to the posterior dissection. And um, I have not embarked on uh, retius sparing approaches because I think I do some technical modifications similar to yourself that recapitulate some of that. But broad strokes, any kind of opinions on functional or oncologic outcomes using anterior versus posterior approach? Well, I have done some of the retius sparing procedures and in my opinion, it doesn't improve any continence or sexual function. If you do an anterior approach, with preservation of the dorsal venous complex and the anterior arcus tendinus, the final aspect is actually the same. Because what I did in the beginning, I did some ratchet sparing procedures, and at the end, I took down the bladder just to look how the way it was. You know, it looks exactly the same. So, and when you do ratchet sparing, you have a lot of difficulties in terms of bladder neck dissection. You are not that used to the kind of anatomy, and you tend to go very close to the prostate. So, I don't think it's safe to do retsis sparing for a locally advanced disease. And actually the data shows that the margin rates are actually very high for retsis sparing procedure. The positive margin rates are higher. 
if you do rats, it's very localized basic disease. And you don't see any benefit in terms of, in terms of functional outcomes if you are comparing to anterior approach with preservation of the in the pelvic fascia and the dorsal venous complex. So why should we do posterity, which is much more difficult? We are not used to this kind of anatomy. It's all, you know, you have to do the anastomosis, it's all inverted. It's all, it's all it's a, sometimes it's kind of mess, you know, and why should you do it if you're not going to benefit patients? So I I did like 10, 15 virtues sparing procedures, and I found that the outcomes are not any are not getting any better than the outcomes that I had before. And I'm really running the risk of having a high risk of positive margin. So I, I don't like it, honestly, the posterior approach for, not, not for the seminal vasculation, that I think it's okay, but doing the whole procedure of retrospective, I don't like it. What are your thoughts on that? Do, do you, have you tried it? you like it? I have tried it and I also don't like it. So, and I, I totally hear you 100%. So, you know, one of the parts of the case that I'm very meticulous about is actually the incision of the endopelvic fascia. I incise the endopelvic fascia. Of course, there's people that don't. But, you know, I'm, I start out towards a base mid-prostate, make a small incision, slide in my scissors, and then come as medial as possible to the prostate and cut, making sure to leave the arcus tendinous and the um, pubo-prosthetics intact. And when I, when I sweep off, I make sure I'm sweeping posteriorly so the fascia remains on the endopelvic fascia, uh, on the levators. And then when I cut, this was after coming to Brazil, I also very much liked the dorsal venous sparing approach. And, you know, I think leaving that infrastructure in place that tethers the urethra anteriorly and provides support. So now you've got your arcus tendinous, you've got your levators, and then you've got your DVC. I totally agree. And I, and I didn't see any kind of benefit in my early continence rates. And I liked it from an oncologic perspective better. So the first thing I do is dig, dig out my my VAS and my SVs. If I can get into a good nerve sparing plane from posterior, fine. But also if it's a posterior tumor and you've really got to get into you know onto the pre-rectal fat and take things wide, I find that the retinal sparing becomes a little bit more challenging. You almost have to be in, in the intrafascial plane, in my opinion. So I didn't like it, but I do these modifications, staying close to the prostate, leaving the arcus intact and sparing the DVC that I don't, that I think actually kind of recapitulate many of the benefits of retinal sparing. Yeah, that's what I usually say. Well, then when these guys say, look, my contents rates are better with retinal sparing compared to the anterior approach, I say, look, it depends what you are comparing retinal sparing to what kind of anterior approach, because there are many ways to do an anterior radical prostatectomy. So if you're doing an anterior approach, but with all these details, all this preservation, preserving the arcustendinus and, and all the, the anterolateral uh, uh, neurovascular structures, then it's different. Then it looks exactly the same at the end of the procedure. So. It's not comparing retinal sparing versus anterior. It's comparing retinal sparing versus what you call ultra-preservative technique done anteriorly. Totally. And I mean, it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you have your bladder suspended in the upper abdomen abdomen to the transversalis fascia, that that's not really going to impact your, your continent. It's really what's kind of happening at the level of the, you know, essentially the bladder neck prostate urethra junction. So if I may, for, for maximal continence preservation, it sounds like bladder neck sparing is preferred, not mandatory. Oncologically sound maintenance of the anterior structures, the DVC specifically, the arcus 
as much of the endopelvic fascia as preferred. And then do you try to dissect out the apex very much if it's not an apical tumor? Well, I try to minimize the dissection of the apex as much as I can. Like that's, I thought it was one of the problems when you like get the DVC, usually over dissect the apex and the retrosphincter. And that's why I think the early condense rates are not as good as I have today. And, you know, I did my fellowship with Patel, and at that point, he was ligating the DVC, putting a suspension stitch at the beginning, and he was clearly overly dissecting the urethra and the early condense rates were not as good as we are having today. So this is some of the key steps, in my opinion, when you're doing a prostatectomy. Don't touch that much, uh, don't touch the, the urethra sphincter, just minimize the dissection, go close to the prostate, especially if it's not a apical tumor, and that is the, really the key for for uh, early contest rate. It's not really doing reps as a spare, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes when you're a trainee, it's so nice to just keep dissecting when you're in a good plane, and then you see your DVC, and you see the urethra, and right, and uh, 100% have kind of shifted away. Once I'm able to kind of tell where the you know shoulder of the prostate is, the apical shoulder, then I'm kind of done. I do, um, you know, if it's a bit more of a DVC ligation, I do suspend it to the uh, pubic bone, actually at the end of my, my urethral anastomosis. Do you have any opinions on suspension stitches, Rocco stitches for enhancing continence? Oh, I do exactly like who I finish my anterior reconstruction and I do suspend to the pubic bone. Uh, when I was a fellow, we did a retrospective study with Patel and it did show some benefits in terms of early continence. Because though I think that you you bring the urethra to the initial position in the pelvic floor, the angulation of the urethra, it's kind of uh, reconstructed by the suspension stitch. And also the rocco stitch brings the, the novelist, brings the, the rhabdo sphincter towards the pelvis to its initial anatomical position in the pelvic floor. Because when you cut it, the, the, the rhabdo sphincter slides distally so I think it does make sense to do the Rockwell stitch. And also there's some other benefits in terms of taking the tension out of your anastomosis. There's some benefits in terms of hemostasis. You know, there's some veins that bleeds right behind the urethra. So I like doing the Rockwell stitch. Uh, we have, a, again, a retrospective study showing some benefits in terms of early combos. I'm not totally convinced that we are changing the condense rates by doing this anterior and posterior construction, but I think it does make sense. It improves hemostasis, it takes the tension of the anastomosis, and it break and it reconstruct the anatomy tool. You know, it, it's similar to what you, it was before your surgery, so it does make sense to to do it. And I mean, I, we don't have enough data, level one data, to show that we are improving condense, but. I think that makes a lot of sense to do all these reconstructions at the end of your procedure. Yeah, fair. You know, just trying to try to get back to as much uh, near normal anatomy and and starting with not disrupting it extensively. You know, first things first, as much as you can as you can leave intact. And um, how about you know deciding if you're going to do a bladder neck reconstruction? Are you doing that frequently, infrequently, and what is your preferred technique, uh, Rafael? So I try to, so as I said, I try to make the bladder neck small, sort of aggressive preservation. So most of the times I don't have to do a, a, a bladder neck reconstruction. It has to have a prior TRP or a medium low. In those cases, 
uh, you end up having to do a, a reconstruction. So I usually do like a lateral application of the bladder neck. I think it's the easiest way to do it. And this the way that I learned with Patel. And usually I do like this, but when it is a very large prostate, very large medial lobe, that I'm afraid that uh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna have problems reaching the urethra with the bladder neck. Then I reconstruct it posteriorly, like we used to do in the open radical prostatectomy. So in some special cases, when I think that I may have problems reaching the, the urethra with the bladder neck, I try to reconstruct it posteriorly so I can have a better you know, I can bring the bladder down, all the way down to the urethra easily. But many, most of the times I just do this lateral placation, one, one each side of the bladder neck, and it's usually enough to have a small bladder neck, as, which is going to match the size of the urethra. That's what I usually do. Yeah, so one of the um, surgeons that actually had among the best functional outcomes at Memorial would routinely take a fairly large bladder neck. And then after he completed the posterior plate of his anastomosis, he would put a catheter all the way across. And then on the bladder, starting at the cranial most side, just take a V-lock suture and run it right down until he was literally at the exact same size of the catheter, 16, 18 French, and then complete the anastomosis. I've adopted that way because I feel like it's you never have to worry about like getting the UOs or anything like that. Those are well visualized. You're never guessing at the size of your final bladder neck. And, you know, as you rate it down, if you want to tighten it up even a bit more, you can. Um, but that's that's what I go with. And I would say I probably do a reconstruction maybe once every 20 to 30 prostatectomies, but I have no problems doing it. And I would love to know if, you know, a one centimeter bladder neck is any any different than a one and a half centimeter bladder neck that's reconstructed down to a centimeter. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, the posterior technique, the lateral technique, you know, the fish mouth technique or this anterior tennis racket are all reasonable. And I always tell the, the residents, find one that resonates with you, that makes sense with you, commit it to your memory so that when you do have to construct a, reconstruct a bladder neck, you know exactly what you're doing and you have a plan. Anything beyond that, you know, extensive reconstruction of the um, endopelvic fascia, re-sewing it back to the fascia of the levators, anything beyond that or pretty much a suspension stitch and a, and a Rocco stitch for you? Well, that's what I usually do. I, I do suture the, the bladder neck to the arcus tendineus sometimes, mainly for hemostasis because that sometimes you'll cut some of the dorsal veins, then... In order to do the hemostasis, I suture the dorsal veins in the arcus tendinus to the anterior bladder neck. Not that I think that it's going to change in terms of contents, but just to do hemostasis and actually re reconstruct the initial anatomy because the bladder neck was actually attached to the arcus tendinus. So I usually do that because, again, I think it makes sense to do it. I'm not totally convinced that we're changing outcomes by adopting those technical modifications. Well, something that I change is when I'm doing salvage surgeries or post-radiotherapy, then I'd rather have a large bladder neck and remove all that bladder that got a lot of scar with the, with the radiotherapy. And I'd rather to the very large bladder neck and re reconstruct the bladder neck with health tissue, in my opinion. Then, and then I like to have a large bladder neck uh, for those salvage cases, I think makes sense. So when I have a very low... Uh, rates of bladder neck contracture after salvage cases by 
by doing a, a very nice bladder neck reconstruction instead of trying to preserve it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I hadn't thought about that. It's it's a good thought. Okay, so we talked about, you know, kind of the factors for consideration for oncologic control. I think we've covered some of the main components of a bladder neck dissection, the apical dissection, and the various reconstruction options. And then, of course, is, uh, you know, preservation of, of potency. And when I'm talking to patients on the front end about risks and benefits of prostatectomy, when it comes to continence, I'll say, you know, here's the rates, et cetera. And then off the record, barring anything unusual, you should be dry. By nine months, you know, at the latest, you should be dry. Then I'll say, you know, for potency, it's much harder to predict that, you know, everybody's tissue plans are a little bit different. And, you know, I, I will usually be a, a little bit more conservative on the uh, sexual function outcomes than I would about the, about the urinary component. Do you have any comment on that? Well, I agree that uh, long-term contents is usually not an issue with a radical prostatectomy nowadays. Obviously, some patients have the sphincter inside the prostate. These are the patients that are not going to recover continence long-term, in my opinion. You can do whatever you think in terms of technical modifications, but in some patients, the sphincter is actually inside the apex of the prostate. So when you cut it, you're going to have you're going to compromise contents. That's why I think we don't have a 100% contents rates long-term. Some patients are in content after 2RP, right? So it's not a, a high incidence, but some of them, they get some incontinence after procedures for BPH. So, I, But I totally agree with you. Long-term, these patients should do fine. POTUS is a totally different history because it's multifactorial. Some patients, they don't have a sexual partner, they get like a lot of anxiety of the cancer diagnosis and this affects long the recovery of sexual function. And again, and then you have the uh, the rehab of the, the penile rehab after surgery that can have some impact in terms of long-term recovery of sexual function. Age has a huge, it's one of the most important factor in terms of recovery of sexual function. Also the the basal sexual function prior to surgeries. There are so many key factors that can affect long-term recovery of sexual function that's really hard to predict. And I totally agree with you. I cannot tell my patients, look, long-term you're going to do fine in terms of sexual function. Actually, we don't know. We really don't know, and it's very hard to predict. We did a study with Patel when it was a fellow there with more than 5,000 patients. We look at predictors for recovery of sexual function. And the most important factors were the she score prior to surgery and age. These are really the most important factors predicting 12 months uh, recovery of sexual function. Young guys, sexual function is good prior to surgery. These patients are the ones that are going, they're gonna do well because you know, young patients recover fast. Sexual function was perfect prior to surgery. Even if they have a decrease in terms of quality, they still gotta do well 12 months later. So that's what I tell patients: I can do the best nerve sparing procedure. I cannot predict your recovery of sexual function, but if you're young, healthy, and you have a very good sexual function prior to surgery, your odds of recovery sexual function are very good 12 months later. Wholeheartedly, and I think uh, you know. When anybody starts, it's always the most unknown of how does this go in my own hands? Because there is so much variability, tolerance for 
positive, positive, possible positive margins, getting a good assessment of their of their functionality. So I'm I'm fairly similar to you. You know, if it's radiographic T3 disease involving neurovascular bundles, that's going to be a wide excision. That's that's a kind of you know oncologic principle. And similar to you, in the higher risk patients, you know, basically unfavorable intermediate risk on the ipsilateral side of their biopsy, assuming their their MRI is clean, you know, it'll be a planned partial nerve sparing or an assessment of the of the capsule essentially as you're doing the nerve sparing. So what I do is once I've completed my bladder neck, so starting out with a posterior dissection, I try to get it into a nice intrafascial plane early on, as long as that's sound in my, you know, in my opinion, if they've got a big posterior tumor, then I'll go get onto the periorectal fat. So I try to develop the intrafascial plane. And then when I come to the bladder neck, laterally, I'll grab my SV and, you know, gently kind of rock it. And oftentimes I feel like you can see these shifting planes of where the bundle is and then where the pedicle is. So I'll try to spread in there and then see if I can't pop into my nerve sparing plane, both laterally and now posteriorly. And then of course, just in between you have the pedicle, which in my opinion, the actual prostate pedicle rarely extends beyond the base of the prostate or perhaps base mid. And then when you've taken it, you're essentially connecting those dots between the posterior and the lateral, and then you take that to the apex. Can you talk a little bit about your nerve sparing technique, Rafaela? Yeah. So, well, I think essentially we do very similar. What I what I changed, so I did this when I did finish my fellowship, well, I was doing exactly like did Patel. I was doing the retrograde release of the neuromuscular bundle, which means we're trying to dissect the neuromuscular bundle from the prostate prior to ligating the pedicle. And the advantages are because if you're doing an anti-grade fashion, sometimes you can get into prostate. You can incise the prostate because you don't really know the limits of the prostate. You have those perforating arteries that if you don't cut it and you try to just push it, then it would disrupt the capsule of the prostate. And by doing retrograde, you define the limits between the prostate and the neurovascular bundle, and you can easily see where exactly the pedicle is and you know where to clip. So I was just doing like him retrograde, but then I realized, look, we have to preserve this anterolateral nerves as well. And that's why when I try, I started doing the retrograde release, like dissecting the neurovascular bundle from the prostate prior to ligating of the pedicle, but without ligating the DVC. So as I said, it's it's all the same thing, you know, the DVC and the dorsal, the DVC and the neurovascular bundle are the same structure. So. You start off your dissection very high underneath the DVC and you connect to this lateral plane to the posterior plane of the dissection, but we totally free your neurovascular bundle prior to ligating the prostatic pedicle. And this is what I usually do. And I think we are doing, as you described, is doing very similarly and uh, just a little bit like you start to some surgeons like to start the dissection at the base or at the apex. I like to start at mid-prostate. I do my lateral dissection. I connect the lateral plane underneath the DVC to the posterior plane, and then I, I just have to ligate the, the prostatic pedicle. I even did, in, the, in the, my early experience, some preservation of the tip of the seminal vesicle, like those French surgeons, they, they are, actually, they're still doing I was in France last week, and they did a couple of live cases and they actually preserved the tip of the seminal vesicles too. 
And my experience is that those patients have a lot of pain at ejaculation after surgery. So I even had to go back and take the seminal vesicle out of two or three patients because they were pulling, but they were having so much pain after the intercourse that I had to to just reoperate them to take the apex of the seminal vesicle. So I don't do it anymore. Uh, and I don't think it makes any difference in terms of sexual function recovery. And do you use uh, a no cautery technique when you do your nerve sparing? So I use clips. That's what I like to use. I know there's some controversy if, the, if you use bipolar or even uh, other kinds of energy, you could actually spare the, the nerves like better than using clips. But I think you use the key points for me are no traction and uh, and the atermal dissection. I think this is really the key. You cannot compromise. If you do a lot of traction and if you use thermal energy, you're going to have a lot of neuropraxia. This patient is going to take longer to recover and the uh, uh, in my personal experience, this is really key, and that's what I have been doing for the last 10 years. What about you? Use clips, Hemolox, how do you control the, the pedicle? Yeah, I use Hemolox. If it's nerve-sparing, Hemolox only. If it's non-nerve-sparing, and this may be voodoo, I'll use my bipolar to take a nice wide thermal margin, and then I'll clip clip below, and uh, just for a bit additional hemostasis. So. Um, but if it's nerve sparing, pretty much non th- non thermal, and I even if the the DV excuse me the neurovascular bundle is a little bit oozy at the end of the case, I'd rather lightly over sew it with a you know a vicral than than use a lot of uh, cautery. Yeah, I think uh, I mean I, the traction part is interesting, and it's one of the things that kind of made sense to me about an anterior or excuse me apical release early, is because so much of that traction when you're trying to define the pedicle is at that fixed point of the apical junction. So uh, one of the surgeons that I've worked with previously would release the apex before even doing the bladder neck or anything. And it appealed to me if you didn't get into the nerve spring plane early, sometimes I felt like it would lead to a bit more bleeding. And, um, you know, that could obscure the rest of the case, not the end of the world. But, um, Ultimately, what I end up doing is just not putting as much traction on the SVs and the VAS when when handling my pedicles. Any any thoughts on that on an early apical release? Well, I think it can be done. I have tried. The problem is sometimes you get to you get it to the bleeding since the beginning of the case, and then it, if you cut in those veins in the beginning, either you're gonna have to suture it or you're gonna have some oozing through your throughout your whole procedure, and then I. I cannot see the, the bundles very well. So I tried to leave the that part of the procedure to the end. So I totally release the prostate. If I get some bleeding from the dorsal venous complex, I'm done with all my dissection. So it's not a real issue. I can just finish the apical dissection. So I try to avoid dissecting the apex early just to avoid bleeding from the dorsal venous complex. Yeah, that's kind of exactly where I landed. It was mostly just kind of a it's nice if they pop right off and you get in the plane and you can work them back. But if you get into a bit of a wrong plane, then, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's inconvenient. So, and then, you know, nerve sparing, it doesn't have to be all or none, right? There's, there's intermediaries. Can you talk a bit about, uh, about partial nerve sparing? Yeah. So this is something that we, we also published a couple of years ago. We look at the radio distance 
from the prostatic capsule to the widest point of the of the extra prostatic extension. So how much of the nerves you have to leave into the prostate in order to avoid a positive surgical margin. And that and you had our, our pathologist reviewing all these slides and what we found is nine percent of the cases this distance from the prostatic capsule to the widest point of the extra prostatic extension is just about three millimeters. So if you went to, if you have just a three millimeter margin of neurovascular tissue into the prostate, you can avoid 90% of positive surgical margins in patients with a nerve with, with an extra prostatic extension. So unless you have a, a very bulky disease in the MRI, those patients are going to have to do a non-nerve sparing procedure. But if we are talking of microscopic extraprostatic extension, just go a little bit wider, just three millimeter margin of neurovascular tissue that has to be left into the prostate in order to avoid a positive surgical margin. That's what you call nerve sparing and the partial nerve sparing. That's what I like to do. If you look at the guys in Hamburg, they do what they call the neurosafe, which is interesting. I like the way they do. They do a, like a frozen section real-time intraoperatively, and they have a dedicated pathologist to do that. So in 15 minutes, they have the final pathology and they know if they had a positive margin or not. The problem with that, if it was positive, they just go back there and take the whole bundle. So this one, I think, doesn't make sense. So we have like a one millimeter positive margin, we're going to go back there and take the whole neurovascular bundle. I don't think that makes sense. That's why I'd rather do a partial neurosparing with just a little bit of tissue into the prostate instead of doing a neurosafe approach and take the whole bundle for because of a small margin that probably will not, well, will not affect the long-term outcomes of this patient, right? Totally. And I think that uh, that technically, actually, a partial nerve sparing is significantly more challenging because you don't have the benefit of being there on the capsule, you know, that kind of shiny egg white. And, um, you know, if you, if you stay, it's just like if you're digging out the SV or the VAS, right? Like if you're right on it, it's quite easy. But once you're a millimeter or two off, like for an introductory carcinoma, as you're worried about transmural spread into the SV and you're trying to leave some fat and connective tissue on it, that's just a little bit trickier than getting right on it. And same for the partial nerve sparing in the appropriate cases, either radiographic, micrometastatic, and, and even those do make me a bit nervous, but to me, it would be more of a higher risk patient with, you know, seven, eight, nine, four plus equals seven, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, that I'm a little bit more worried that I would maybe do a partial nerve spring as you described. Yeah, partial are, are definitely more challenging because you can either go very close because when you do a full nerve sparing, it doesn't bleed at all. You know, all the neurovascular bundle is preserved, the arteries are preserved. And you do, when you go very wide, you can also just put clip or use cautery in the whole bundle and then it doesn't bleed. But if you want to do a partial, it's very hard to find the exact, like the plane that we can do, we can preserve partially and not get it too close to the caption. So it's really, this is when I think that experience makes the difference when you're doing partial nerve sparing. That's what, you know, it's more ch the most challenging nerve sparing procedure. And that's why I think you should look for an experienced robotic surgeon. This guy is going to make difference, especially those partial nerve sparing procedures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, we didn't talk much about, you know, actual interop or periop 
issues, problems, complications. I mean, I feel like these days, standard surgical technique, drop the pneumoperitoneum, close hemostasis, you really shouldn't have any, you know, significant operative issues or problems. Are there anything that you do to avoid complications, so to speak? Well, the only thing, well, I think that, as you said, if you have a reticulous technique, you do a little good hemostasis, you shouldn't have bleeding post-op. These are very rare. Uh, then anastomotic disruption, very rare. The way we do the reconstruction, the anastomosis is usually perfect. We can take the catheter out in five to seven days. That's what I usually do in my practice. Something that I'm still not able to avoid are the lymphocytes because I use a lot of clips and uh, I try to to do, you know, I do transfer to new, I clip everything and it's still, I'm not able to avoid uh, uh, long-term lymphocytes. Lymphocytes in my practice, they get infected months after surgery and that's why uh, I just, I don't, know how to avoid it because, you know, you know, you see that patient that had prostatectomy six months ago and they still get an infected lymphocyte and I actually don't know how to avoid it. If you have any tip or trick that you could give me to avoid long-term lymphocytes, that would be great. Have you tried this peritoneal flap interposition at all? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I haven't seen it. I have seen the description. I tried, I was... You know, it's hard without a without a study. It's hard to say if it works and if not, it doesn't work because, as I said, most of my cases are uh, months later. You know, months uh, after surgery, so you actually don't know if it works or not. But I I, I would give it a try. You're doing that in the in your clinical practice. I don't, to be perfectly honest, but. Uh... I, I totally hear you. You know, every year there's some guy that had a prostatectomy nine, you know, three no months ago, comes in with some legs feeling pain and like out of the blue, they've got an infected lymphocyte. And as you know, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, drains and antibiotics and pull drains and blah, blah, blah. Like it can be a, a bit of a to do. So I don't do them. I, uh, I use clips of bipolar fairly extensively for my lymphadenectomy. And I think there's actually a randomized study that shows that clips and bipolar are fairly equivalent. I haven't done the peritoneal flap. I understand it takes like two minutes and I don't think there's going to be a randomized trial. There probably shouldn't be a randomized trial because it's such a small point, but uh, something to consider trying for myself uh, and uh, other people, you know, I have talked to some fairly high volume surgeons that, that kind of swear by the effectiveness of it, but I haven't done it myself yet. Yeah. And then, you know, I, if it's not necessarily for prostate Tectomy, lymph node dissection, but if I do robotic RPLND, I do use uh, tissue sealants, Vistaseal, Tisseal fairly extensively. And it's it's kind of anecdote, but I will, if it's a bit oozier than I like, I'll either either put some flow seal or um, surge seal or something in at the end of the case. But that's that's kind of case by case. Excellent. So, you know, I think we've talked about at least the you know there's pentafectas and quadrifectas and sextafectas, and it goes on and on. But I, I think it's safe to say that a high volume center perioperative complications should be uncommon. We've talked quite a bit about, you know, the oncological things we can do to maximize the likelihood of surgery alone being curative and making a good assessment of, you know, what's going on in terms of uh, lymph node metastases. We've talked about, you know, a fair number of, re of tips and tricks to help preserve continence and then, of course, um, erectile function. 
So maybe at this point, uh, Rafael, I would just ask you, you know, are there any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership as they're considering either doing a prostatectomy or counseling their patients? Well, I think you pretty much covered the most important tips and tricks for, for a radical prostatectomy. And uh, I think you have to choose one technique, you know, because, you know, I've seen surgeons, they try to change all the time and they start one one kind of surgical technique and then, then two months later they try to do something different and then if you do that you never get very experienced in one single you know way to do a radical prostatectomy so what i would uh, recommend like choose your technique there are many ways to do it and once you choose it you should get very experienced and optimize your outcomes by uh, surpassing the learning curve you have to do a lot of things, the same thing, and then you're going to optimize the way you do a radical prostatectomy. Don't keep changing, you know, don't keep moving to rats and then going back to an anterior approach or, you know, uh, doing an anti-grade nerve and then you move to a retrograde nerve Just choose, choose the way you do the best way that you can and keep doing it so you get, uh, get experience on the best way to do the radical prostatectomy. So this, is, I think, is, the, is a key point for having good outcomes long term. Well, Rafaelo, it's certainly nice to connect with you. You know, I you were an amazing host when I came down for the AUA SBU exchange program. And, you know, watching you operate was absolutely a treat. If anybody can track down a video or spend some time down at East Sesp, it's, it's something else. So look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. And uh, thanks again for all of your, uh, your excellent tips and tricks. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me here. It's going to be great to see you after the pandemic, after so many years without having a beer together. So I'm looking forward to see you at AUA this year. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.